Amen. Great to be with you today as we continue our journey through 2 Samuel. We've gotten to a part of the book, though, where it just keeps going from bad to worse. Um, You know, we love, we're studying David. Man, he's killing giants. He's so honorable. He becomes king. He conquers most of the area around them, establishes the nation. But then we saw, you know, a couple chapters ago that he very foolishly sinned, not just once, but he kept doubling down on his sin. He would never say, that was a bad idea. And so then he did something worse. And then he wouldn't say, that was a bad idea. And so he'd do something worse until it deteriorated to the point where, you know, it cost several people their lives. He killed someone. He impregnated the guy's wife. He then acts like a big show-off, like he's going to do a favor for poor Uriah and marry his wife and raise his child. And it was just, the whole thing was just a complete mess. And we realize that sin is that way. As I talked about, sin is anytime you do something that settles for less than God's best for you. God wants his best for you. And so whenever you say, I'll do this instead, it's good enough. That's what the Bible calls a sin. A sin doesn't become a sin because you're breaking some rule that God has. God gives us rules and principles because he knows what's best for us. And David illustrates what happens when you ignore the voice of God. But we saw last week as we were going through in chapter 12, and we see that he's confronted in a really tactful way by Nathan, his friend, and as to what he had done. And David openly repented. He actually ordered, uh, he wrote a song, Psalm 51, about it and had them publish that and put music to it. He was totally honest now about what he had done. And that was really important, but Nathan made it clear to him from God, don't think that because you're forgiven, that the consequences of your choices go away. Consequences stick with the choices that we make. And being forgiven is not a way to escape consequences. Because, see, the thing is, consequences are one of the greatest privileges we have as beings. The fact that I can do something and it matters, the fact that I can do something and it affects the future, but see, if it's only like, if I do something dumb... Well, nothing bad happens because God forgave me. But then I do something good and something good happens. That's not fair. That's a stacked deck. And so the Bible teaches very clearly that we have this ability to make choices that actually define our future. Now, if you have something that has no consequences, then as a person, you become inconsequential, insignificant. You don't matter unless your choices matter. That's what is the power that God has given to human beings. And so David has to understand that there's going to be a lot of bad that's going to happen. And part of what was we saw in chapter 12 was that your family is going to be kind of a mess after this. And a lot of bad things are going to come because of what you did. But still, here's the thing. So how are you going to make decisions now? Are you going to whine about the past? 
are you going to today begin making decisions that will have better consequences for you in the future? And that's a question that each one of us has posed to us by life when we wake up in the morning. What am I going to do today? And what will be the consequences of the choices that I make? It's very simple. It's not always easy to do the best thing. But in the end, it's what it is to be most human, is to understand the privilege that we have of being able to affect our own future. Well, now as we come to chapter 13, we begin to see the aftermath of all this. And something else comes into play because, and by the way, I'm just warning you in advance and I'll be as tactful as I can about it, but it's what the Bible says, but there's an ugly sexual assault in this chapter and, and a murder and some other stuff. So I'm just preparing you in case, you know, you're like, you, that's too triggering for you. But uh, it's the Bible, it's what it says, and we'll try, to be, we'll try to be sensitive as much as I'm capable of being sensitive. But this is what happens. And here's something like, what happens to David's family isn't really the consequence of what David did more than David becomes in this chapter an enabler who doesn't do anything to prevent his family from ruining their own lives as he had ruined his. See, that's taking it a whole step further. Yes, I make bad choices and I suffer consequences, but now I certainly don't want to be somebody who makes a choice that makes it easier for you to ruin your life. And what we see in chapter 13 is David, the king of Israel, David, this man after God's heart, David, this the one who wrote so many psalms and had so much that God gave him and he was critical in the history of the nation. Yet in chapter 13, as a dad, he becomes a complete enabler who protects his kids from the consequences of their choices. See, he didn't learn the lesson at all that decisions have consequences and consequences are very real and teach us about our decisions. And some of them are good and some of them are bad and that's how we grow and learn and become better human beings. Instead, he becomes a guy who enables his own kids. He ends up becoming, he doesn't understand that part of the consequence of his sin wasn't just what would happen to him, but it's the kind of person that he would become that would therefore end up feeding into the lower, the worst parts of his own kids and messing them up as well. And, you know, if you're not an enabler, you certainly know people who are. Those people who are just like, I just don't have the heart to let my kid, my brother, my friend, my spouse, whoever, I just don't have a heart to tell them, sorry, you're making choices and you have consequences and I can't bail you out from your consequences. If I did, it would be the worst thing in the world. The, the person who could most enable us is God. He could repair whatever damage we do, but he chooses not to do it because he values us more than that. And people who enable other people, who make it possible for them to get along, get away with stupidity, they're not their friend at all. They're actually allowing them to destroy themselves. And so we see this, let's just go through this story uh, quickly in chapter 13. 
After this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. It's already getting weird. Absalom was a son of David, and he was like incredibly magnetic. People loved him. He was great. We see from other pastors, he was great looking, which, and if that's not bad enough, he had great hair. I'm like, I think I hate him more for that than the fact that he ends up killing his brother. But no, he was, he had everything going for him, but he wasn't the oldest son. Amnon was. So Amnon is in line for the throne. Meanwhile, good looking Absalom has a great looking sister, Tamar. And this creepy half brother who is going to be the king of Israel if everything goes according to plan, he looks at his half sister and he's like, whoa, now this sounds weird. When you start tracing David's family trees and everything, it like it's like Brady Bunch from hell in terms of all these, you know, half brothers and half sisters. It's all complicated. Whenever you get that, it tends to be kind of a mess, you know, belongs in Utah or something. But, you know, it's, sorry. But, uh, by the way, I wonder why the Chinese were floating a balloon above, like, Utah. And my, what do they think they're going to find over there? Actually, we shot it down, and they found out it was a misunderstanding. It wasn't a Chinese spy. It was a promotion for Greg Laurie's new movie. But um, <laughs> So anyway, back to our story. Back to our story. Amnon, the next king, he's got a crush on his little half-sister, and Absalom knows about it. Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar, what a sicko, that he became sick. Yeah, you're right. For she was a virgin, and it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. Yeah, the law says, don't have relations with your sister or with your half-sister. Now, that wasn't always true. During the time of Abraham, Abraham married his half-sister. But the law hadn't been given. Now God had made laws about incest. And so what he was desiring was completely wrong. And yet he's the future king and he's not used to saying no to him. So Amnon had a friend named Jonadab. This guy was a smart little dirtbag. The son of Shimei, David's brother. So Jonadab is Amnon's cousin. And it says in verse 3, Now Jonadab was a very crafty man. Now, that's a clever translation, crafty. Um, some of the, I looked at all the translations of this word. They'll say sneaky or devious or things like that. The Hebrew word there is just the normal word for wise. And so the only guy that even came close to being faithfully translating that word was actually the message, Eugene Peterson. The way he translated it is he was a streetwise guy. So, yeah. He was wise, he knew what he was doing, that wisdom doesn't automatically make you a good person, and he certainly wasn't. So he came up with this great idea, hey, why are you the king's son becoming thinner day after day? What's wrong with you? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. He should have said, what? Are you crazy? You're throwing away your entire future. What an idiot. But instead, he's like, okay, I got a plan. He said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend like you're sick. 
your dad, David, will come and visit you and tell him, wah, please let my sister Tamar come and give me food and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. What a dumb idea. I mean, they're the royal family. They no doubt have great chefs. I'm not thinking that Tamar was really, I mean, you look at, look at the Food Network. How many really good-looking chefs do you even see? But it's beside the point. But at any rate, this is obviously concocted. Like, what, only her food prepared by her hand is going to heal me? I mean, this is worse than a kid, you know, putting his, you know, thermometer by the heater and then telling his mom he feels sick before school and he has a temperature of 112, you know. But Amnon laid down and pretended to be ill. And the king came to see him, check up on him, wearing a mask. And (laughs) I don't know if he did or not. Amnon said to the king, please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight that I may eat from her hand. David should have said, what in the world are you talking about? Dude, you're supposed to be the next king. Suck it up, get up and be a man. You're hungry, make your own food or let somebody else in your family. You expect me to order that young teenage girl to come and baby you? But instead he goes, okay. So he sends a message to Tamar and said, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. And Tamar went to Amnon's house and he was lying down and she took flour and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes and took the pan and placed them out before him. But he's like, I just still can't eat. Can you bring him into my bedroom? I really like eating in bed. That's really what I want to do. Bring it in here. And so she comes in there. When she brought him in in verse 11, he grabbed a hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. Yuck. I mean, how disgusting. The next king of Israel, and he's doing that. But Tamar's amazing because there's only so much she can do. She can't just fight him off. She can't run and tell on him because nobody in this family cared about anybody else hardly. So she answered him and said, no, my brother, appealing to him, don't force me, please. For no such thing should be done in Israel. Don't do this disgraceful thing. This is disgusting. Oh, you're better than this. And I, where could I take my shame? That would brand me forever. And as for you, you'd be like one of the fools in Israel. You know, more than a thousand years later, people are going to be laughing at you. What an idiot you were. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. I'm not sure if at this point, She thought that David might just say, if you ask dad, maybe he'll make an exception. Or if she's just trying to buy for time. But, you know, he really didn't have the right, even though he's king, he doesn't have a right to circumvent the law. But she thought, maybe he'll make an exception. Maybe he would prefer to have this violation of this law rather than to have something worse happen. But he would not heed her voice. And being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. And then immediately, as often becomes the case when someone 
forces themselves on somebody out of lust. They just think they think they know what they want, but really it's just completely selfish. It's not motivated by wanting to um, be a blessing to another person. He hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise and be gone. Love them and leave them. I took advantage of you against your will, and now I just want this thing to completely go away. You hear about this all the time where a woman is taken advantage of, often by a powerful person, and then they just never hear back from them again. But she said, no, indeed, this evil of sending me away is worse than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. See, her problem was, in their culture, in, that, in, in the Old Testament law, if you were not a virgin, you were not marriage material. Everybody wanted to marry a virgin. The fact that she was now no longer a virgin meant that her future was really, she was disgraced. For him, nah, not so much. The men had a little different, you know, a little different standard for them. It's, it's sick, but it was the way they did it. It was the way it was. And you were also by law, and this seems really strange to us, but it was to protect the women, actually, that if a man forced himself on a woman, he was required to marry her by law. Now you think, what? But when you realize that she won't have a means of support, that she won't have a way to even build a life. There were no groups of single women that could kind of get together and she couldn't go get a job or something like that. In that culture, it would be like, if you put me away like this, my life is over. And in fact, it says that she went on and had to live with her brother Absalom. But at this point, when this happened, he locked her out of the house, told the servant, throw her out and bolt the door. And she was, she tore her robe of many colors that she was wearing and put ashes on her head and put her hand on her head and went away crying bitterly in verse 19. She's devastated. This jerk forced himself on her and now her life is essentially over. And so she's crushed. And verse 20, Absalom, her brother, said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Isn't that weird? Like, why would that be the first thing you suspect? You see her devastated and you're like, did my brother do something to you? So people already had the feeling that he was a dirtbag. People already had, they're like, well, you know, he's a future king. What can you do? Might as well get, get started early. But ultimately, it's like he knew. And other people should have known too. But he asked her that, and then he tried to calm her down. It says that um, he, uh, Absalom didn't talk to his brother, you know, good or bad. But first, he said, look, honey, don't say anything. He's your brother. Blow it off. He tried to minimize it to her, not to him. Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house, probably lived in Absalom's house for the rest of her life. Later, she would have a, he would have a beautiful little daughter who was gorgeous, who he named after her, Tamar. But look at verse 21. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. Anger is typical of somebody who doesn't intend to do anything at all. Angry people think that their anger is doing something. 
Being angry isn't doing anything. In fact, being angry gets it off your chest so that you feel like you don't have to do anything. So this is David. We don't know what he's thinking. You know, maybe he's like going, I don't know, how can I speak out against morality with what I've done? I mean, they've heard the song. They've seen the movie. So it's, but he's so mad. But I don't know. Is he mad because he's mad at himself? Does he think somehow that, that his son Amnon did this because of him? We don't know, but he's mad, but he doesn't do anything. Now, what could he have done at this point? He could have easily said, you're going to support that girl for the rest of your life. You're going to own up to this. You're going to confess it. In fact, we're going before the judges so that they can decide what your punishment should be. And everything's on the table. This may cost you your future right to become king of Israel because you're my, young, you're my oldest son. This might be it. But you need to face the music. Nope, he got mad and did nothing. Absalom just didn't talk to Amnon, good or bad, but he hated him because he had forced his sister Tamar. And two full years later, finally Absalom has his chance. And you can read through this. He, he came to his dad David and he goes, hey dad, I'm having a big sheep sharing party. And... Uh, Thought you and the brothers, you know, let's have a whole family reunion deal, shearing sheep. And David's like, eh, now you guys do it. And he goes, okay, can I take all my brothers? And he's like, yeah, sure, go ahead. It's all a setup. He ends up tricking Amnon into coming, tells the servants, he goes, get him drunk. When people are drunk, they will do stupid things and they're very vulnerable. They can't protect themselves very well. So he gets him drunk, and then he says, when I give you the high sign, kill that guy. And so, in fact, they did. (laughs) And uh, so Amnon goes to this barbecue, gets himself killed. Then, remember Jonadab, the little weasel that was so wise in coming up with this idea? He then apparently goes and tells David, um, he starts a rumor that says, all David's sons are dead. Now, all of them weren't dead, just one was. But it says, David heard the word in verse 30 that Absalom killed all the king's sons. So David's devastated. He's crying, he's on the ground, he's tearing his clothes and throwing ashes on his head. And and then Jonadab, who probably started the rumor, comes to David and he goes, hey David, I have great news for you. You got fake news. It's actually only just one of your sons. Just Amnon, the oldest, the one that's supposed to succeed you. He's dead, but all the rest are still alive. Isn't that great news? And then they came and saw it. Absalom fled in verse 34. Um, He took off. And so Jonadab said, no, everybody's here except Absalom. I'm not sure where he is, but all your other sons are here. Verse 37, Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. Why did he pick that place? Because that king was his grandpa. See, his mom was the daughter of this king, and his dad was David. So that's the closest relative he could go to and hide out with. And David mourned for his son every day in verse 37. It doesn't say that he mourned specifically for Amnon even. In fact, the implication is, as you, well, if you read verse 39 as well, King David longed 
to go to Absalom. Absalom fled and gone to Geshur for three years. King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. So David mourned Amnon, but he got over that. But it seems like now he's like, I lost two sons. Amnon's dead. Absalom, the guy who I would have put in line to succeed me after that, now he's left the country, and it's been three years, but ironically, David never tried to talk to him for three years. We're going to see it later, that ultimately, eventually, he's kind of forced to let him back in the country. And then, but everything that ensued with Absalom trying to take over the kingdom happened with David just doing basically nothing. David still not willing to confront sin, not willing to say, what you did, I will not condone, I will not support. There's a price that you have to pay. Learn from me. I have made horrible mistakes. Consequences have come that are devastating, and I am willing to take those consequences, but I don't want to be the one to make sure that you end up making the similar mistakes and reaping similar consequences. I kind of blame myself. If I had just told Amnon, get up and get your own breakfast, if I had just told him, hey, you assaulted your sister, now we're going to make this right. If I had done any of that, the story could have turned out differently. But instead, here I am just watching innocently, weeping. And again, crying about something doesn't fix anything except it makes you feel better. Ultimately, the only thing that fixes a bad decision is a good decision, is to change your behavior. Now, in this chapter, there are several points that I wanted to harp on because there's a lot in this chapter for sure. One of them, I just have to say it because I know Absalom, we always, people always talk about Absalom, the guy that tried to overthrow David and, you know, he was, you know, we can talk about Absalom as a bad guy. When I read chapter 13, I'm like, I like Absalom a lot. I feel like in a way he was the only guy that wasn't dysfunctional in the family, Because he's like, you did that, I'm doing this. I am not going to just stand by, I'm not going to whine, I'm not going to make excuses, I'm not going to say, oh yeah, but you know, you're the next king, so therefore it's too bad. I'm not going to tell my sister, just like, don't worry, I'm doing something about this. And he was a man of action. Now, you can disagree with me on that. You may look at what Absalom did and say, this is awful, he killed his brother. I don't care, man. for me, personally, I'm, I feel like somebody had to man up. Somebody had to do something. So I look at Absalom and I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, maybe what you did wasn't right, but good job anyway, <laughs> you know, because he is at least doing something. So I appreciate that, but I didn't want to do a whole sermon praising Absalom because I know people think he's a horrible person. And again, if he was bald, I probably would have defended him more rigidly. But, um, but Absalom, I do understand. And I, I appreciate a man of action, even if he may be misguided in the action that he takes. I would rather see somebody make a bad action than no action at all, in other words. Um, I also see in this story the fact that, you know, as I quote Lord Acton all the time, it's one of the smartest things anyone has ever said outside the Bible, Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And as Acton went on to say, therefore I have found that most 
good men, most great men are also bad men. And you see it here. The power of the throne. The power that let David get away with what he did that was devastating to a lot of lives. And now little junior King Amnon, who's going to succeed his dad someday, and so he thinks he has this authority. He can throw his weight around. And as always, and I hate this, that women are easy targets for men to take advantage of. It is, it's always been that way, and it's awful. Women are so important. We, none of us would be here without a woman. And women have qualities that are so much better than any man that you've ever met. And yet our society says, I am stronger than you. And so I am going to do this your way. And then when women try to get equal, they end up getting the, uh, the raw end of the deal anyhow. Where now some, you know, some fat weird guy is swimming against them and beating them in competitions because he considers himself to be a woman. It's like, wait, what happened to the women's movement? I mean, what happened to protecting them? I do think it was cool that that one little fat guy thinks he's a woman and he goes in skating competitions and just falls on his face. That one's good. But, you know, I could do a feminist message from this chapter easy because it's disgusting and there's no excuse for it. But what I'm really wanting to point my attention at for this chapter this time through is this whole issue of enablement. As we said before, the great thing about being a human is that you can make decisions that have consequences. You have the ability to make a decision that affects the future. And it's the greatest privilege that we have. It's also the greatest hazard that we have. Because, see, I have what I do today can either, if I do what God wants me to do. If I do what's best for me before God, it's going to be a better future. If I do stupid things and I keep doing them, I'm going to have a worse future. And you're like, yeah, I know I hate that. You should love that because it means no matter what you've done up to this point, it's never too late for you to affect your future by being responsible in the present. And that's why being an enabler is so horrible. It's so devastating because if David had learned his lesson in chapter 12, then he would have said, look, guys, learn from me. I'm not telling you that I'm so moral and you should be like me. I'm telling you because I have paid a horrible price for my own you know, sin. And as a result, I want you to do better. And so I'm not going to make this easy on you at all. It's the most foolish thing in the world that people think that if they enable someone, like that's love. It's not at all. Now, I'm not saying, you know, make your two-year-old make their own lunch every day. You know, raising children is involved in coming to a point where they are able to take more and more responsibility. Because, and remember when your kids were really young, they loved being able to help. You know, then they get a little older. They don't want to help anymore. That's why you have to teach them. There are consequences to choices because what you're preparing them for is real life. People who cannot confront the realities of life are are doing a horrible disservice to not just their kids, to their siblings, 
to even to their parents, to their friends, to their government. In every way, no one becomes better because you protect them from their consequences. No one becomes better because you let them go into debt. No, consequences are, if you spend all your money, you don't have any money. It's a really important lesson to learn. But we're growing up in a society that says, no, if you don't have any money, you borrow money and let somebody else pay it. They have a bunch of money. Yeah, that's the consequence of them being wise with their money. But you don't let them have that lesson. And I want you to understand that the sin of enabling someone else's sin is as bad, if not worse, than the actual sin of being irresponsible and doing things that result in bad consequences. Because then you're going to get blamed for it. Like what? And it is not easy to draw this line either. It's something that, you know, I wrestle with constantly. You know, but we can see the extreme cases. You know, your son's 35. He's still living in your basement. You're, you know, you're still supporting all of your kids and they're grown and they have kids and you're every time they get to have a problem, it's, you just give them a credit card number or a Venmo or whatever. Uh, those, those kinds of cases are obvious. But in how many times, how many times do we even, when we have a friend who has a problem, we want to solve it for them by just saying, I'll tell you what to do. When it's their responsibility to figure out what to do. We can be honest with them, but we have to say, I'm not going to make this easy on you. Because I've had times when somebody came to me for advice, I gave it to them, they did what I told them to do, it didn't work out that well, and it was all my fault. So I'm like, I don't ever, and I say this all the time with people when I do counseling, I will never tell someone that they should get married or that they should get divorced. I should never tell them they should stay with someone or not. What I want to do is put it back on you. There are consequences to your choices. Figure out what that is, and what God wants you to do is what's actually best for you. The definition of sin is doing something less than God's best. And you should trust him in that, but it's difficult. A lot of times decisions are challenging, but the worst thing in the world is to be the enabler. And I know for a fact there are people who I listen to them over and over and over and over and over again, and they feel better and I feel worse, and I haven't helped them a bit. I don't see in any way that like now they're becoming more responsible. No, they're becoming actually more dependent. And so, and for parents, as your kids grow up, sometimes the hardest thing is like they start getting independent. Are you kidding me? Consider the option. For those, and some parents enable their kids so much that they're still spoiled brats. They're still like Amnon, and you're still covering for them. They still know that you'll, you'll bail them out of whatever mess they get into. Man, it's hard to know where to draw the line, but I'm telling you this. If you don't draw the line, if there are people in your life that you make it easier for them to be stupid, then that's on you partly as well. Take the responsibility of knowing when something isn't your responsibility. The process of raising kids is the process of releasing them because ultimately their future is going to be determined by the choices that they make and the consequences that come. So protecting someone from their consequences actually makes you responsible for their failure. 
you're in, and I've, there are people, I've had family members who I helped and helped and helped, and they end up hating you more and more because they don't feel good because they know they wouldn't have made it if it wasn't for you. It's, it's always, and by the way, one of the warning signs is when you get mad at somebody, it's probably because you're taking more responsibility than you should. See, if I get mad at somebody else's stupid decision, I'm acting like it's my decision. It's not mine. God gives you the right to make your own decisions, and I'm at peace with that. And I want to help the way that God shows me to help, but I do not want to be that person who, in the end, yeah, I have to look myself in the mirror and go, you know what? I made this worse by making it easy for you to be irresponsible. Responsibility, the ability to respond, one of the greatest gifts that God gives us. And if there are no consequences to our choices, if someone takes those consequences away, then what do we become as humans? We become inconsequential. We become less significant. We don't matter because somebody's always going to, we're always playing you know, on the trapeze with a net. Life doesn't have a net. We have to figure that out or we're never going to experience life the way God wants us to experience it. And I, so for me, when I look at this chapter, I'm just going, I know there are times when I have made it easy for someone to be dumb, for someone to hurt themselves. And I don't want to be that guy. I'd rather, like, if David had just, could have just brought himself to say, first of all, Amnon, make your own breakfast. Secondly, stay away from your sister. I see the way you're looking at her. That better not happen. And then when, if it happens, then go, you're supporting her for the rest of your life. In fact, you have to do what she says. I may make her the queen and not you the king. There are all kinds of things he could have done. He didn't do them. And so things deteriorated and got worse. With, with Absalom, who would later end up, spoiler alert, trying to take over the kingdom after all of this, how much better could it have been? Imagine you now have a son who has more guts than you do. You now have a son who really cares about right and wrong and is willing to go out on a limb to protect somebody's life. What if you groomed him to become king? What if you said, hey, Absalom, there's a price you're going to have to pay for killing your brother. So here are the consequences. But at the same time, man, God's not done with you. You're, I wish I had done something so that you wouldn't have had to. You should have been able to depend on me as your dad and as the king. I should have made it right, and I didn't. I got mad and went and cried in my room about it. How much different could Absalom's life and the life of the nation been, in a way, if David had just taken some responsibility instead of enabling? And so I think for all of us, we remember anger doesn't do anything. And enabling is almost never doing someone a favor. Bailing somebody out of their own irresponsibility is a good way to guarantee that they will continue to be responsible. I've never known anyone who dug themselves in a hole and somebody bailed them out and they learned their lesson. The only people I know that learn their lesson is the people who have to dig themselves out of a hole. And then they feel a little bit more self-esteem too because they did it themselves. They may hate you, that's okay. 
They won't hate you the same way that they'll hate you if you help them out because you think they're not capable. You think they're not responsible enough. Treat people like they have an ability to respond and respect their capacities and their desires to learn and to grow. And, and so to me, that's the story I kind of take away from all this. The result of enablement is to breed irresponsibility ultimately. The result of allowing someone to suffer consequences, that's the way you learn to be consequential as a person. That's the way you learn that you matter, that the greatest gift that you have is the gift of self-determination, that you can make choices that result in greater results. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this story, even though it's a hard one even to read. It's a hard one to think about. And partly it's hard because we don't like to see David looking stupid. And we, we kind of don't like cheering for Absalom. feel kind of guilty about that one. But in the end, when your word comes back to our lives, use these situations in your word to do what it's designed to do. To allow us to examine ourselves to take responsibility for ourselves, to not look to other people or a bank or whoever to bail us out, but to work ourselves through the consequences of our choices so that we actually learn that we have an ability to do much more than we thought we did. And please, for those of us who love people that we know, our friends, our neighbors, our family, others, help us not to be a source of pain in their life by helping them when they'd really be better off learning responsibility. So please teach us how to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.